Welcome to the Forerunner Church Podcast, where we highlight key messages and themes related to the body of Christ, inviting you to connect with our spiritual family as we grow in passion for Jesus and compassion for people. For more information, visit forerunnerchurch.com. Good morning. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read this first part and then jump down to verse 9 and some others following. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Verse five highlights the reality that we are one body in Christ, every believer, many members, but one in him. Paul then begins to tell us what it means to be transformed by the gospel to be that living sacrifice before him. It's not just a picture, it's not just a metaphor, but it has a very practical application to our lives. Verse nine, he says that we're to love without hypocrisy. He says we're to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. To be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, but to be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. How about this? Continuing steadfastly in prayer. We're to be steadfast in the place of prayer before God. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. To distribute to the needs of the saints and be given to hospitality. Look at this, verse 14, he says, bless those that persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Every adversarial relationship in our life, we are commanded by scripture to bless and not curse. We're called to, verse 15, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Those that come into favor and success before God were to rejoice with them, not envy them not resist them, not undermine the blessing upon their lives. We're to weep with those who weep. As various individuals that we're in contact with, as they're mourning, as they're going through difficulty or suffering or whatever it may be, we're to weep with them. We're to identify with them in that. Look down at verse 17. He says this, repay no one evil for evil. We're not to repay anyone that does evil to us with more evil. Scripture commands this. 
Have regard for good things in the sight of all men, and if it's, as, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 19, he says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Don't seek to bring vengeance. Why? Because you don't give place for the wrath or the correction or judgment of God. When we get our own justice, we don't leave room for the justice of God. It's one of the great hopes that we have as Christians is that every evil that is done on the earth, we can be confident that God will justly repay it. And that if certain situations or scenarios, if they don't fully play out in a way that seems satisfactory to us, we have confidence in God. He says, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, we come under the authority of your word this morning. We come under the authority of what you say, how you instruct us to live as believers. Lord, we wanna be conformed to the image of Christ. We wanna come under the yoke, under the authority, because when we come under your yoke, we come under your promise, your protection, your healing, your forgiveness, your eternal life. That's what we want, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and we bless you. In your name, amen. Paul writes this letter to the Roman church, and the Roman church, as they're going through their time of persecution, what had happened was, was that one of the emperors had made it illegal for the Jewish community to actually live in Rome and they had been expelled. And the churches of that time frame were comprised largely of Jew and Gentile, a mixture of both. And he writes to the Roman church that's now predominantly a Gentile congregation there as they are receiving back their Jewish brethren because a later emperor allows the Jewish populace to return to Rome and lifts the ban. So Paul writes them the letter to the Romans. It's the most comprehensive and detailed understanding of the gospel that we have. It's one of the greatest writings and works in all of human history, the book of Romans. In chapters one through eight, he lays out the essential premise of the gospel, that it is the power of God to salvation, that it's not by works that we're saved, but by faith in Christ alone. He begins to talk about in chapters 9 through 11, the specific calling 
on the corporate Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and his plan to bring them into his covenantal promises, though they are disobedient to it. And at the end of chapter 11, as Paul is seeing the glorious mystery of the gospel and how it is going to work and how it plays out at the end of chapter 11, he explodes in worship and adoration, how unsearchable are the riches of God. No one would think of a plan like this. That brings us to chapter 12, and through chapter 12 to 16, he begins to give us the practical application now of the glorious gospel of grace that's been given. Here's what God has done, and here's what he intends to do up to this point, and now the onus comes upon us as believers. How then shall we live? How then shall we respond to the glorious gospel of grace? And if you notice in verse one of chapter 12, you can look at it. Paul says, I beseech you, or I charge you, or I exhort you, therefore, and we know that every time that he says therefore, it's in light of something that he's previously stated. So he says, I'm charging you, therefore, by the mercy of God, here's the mindset, here's the construct that you present yourself, your body, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Paul is beginning to talk about the subject of our sanctification, bringing our mind, our will, and our emotions into agreement with the word of God and the teaching of scripture. It's not something that happens automatically. It's something that is done progressively after we are saved. We know that we are justified by faith. At the moment of the new birth, you're made as righteous as God himself. Your spirit man comes alive. You receive the impartation of the righteousness of God by grace through faith. But now how do we live? Because our Emotions and our ways are still fractured and tainted and polluted by our history and our decisions and the consequences of those decisions. So though we're Christians, we don't always live like it. And we certainly don't talk like it. So Paul says, I want your mindset to be in light of the gospel, in light of your redemption, your forgiveness, your cleanness before God. He says, this is now how you're gonna live. Jesus says a little bit differently. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Paul says, present yourself as a living sacrifice before God, but it's the same reality. As Christians, we're supposed to live as though we are dead to the world and its lusts. We're to live as though we've been crucified with Christ, as though all of our passions, all of our ego, all of our compulsions and desires that drive us into the arms of the world and away from the power of the cross those passions are put to death as a living sacrifice before God. 
Jesus says, if you wanna be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. Die daily. Paul says, I die daily as he followed Christ. That means that every day, every moment, there are passions, desires, temptations that are driving us on the inside to act and speak and think in ways that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to see yourself as a sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. It is one thing to become a sacrifice one time. It's one thing to die as a martyr or to be killed for the faith. It's another thing to live as a martyr. It's another thing to live as a sacrifice because it's a perpetual death. It's a perpetual putting off of the flesh and the carnal desires of the flesh and a surrendering to the will of God. When Jesus was in the garden, he was praying prior to going to the cross, before his betrayal, before his trial, so-called trial. He prayed this to the Father, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Let the suffering and the darkness that's in front of me, let it pass from me. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We see Christ in his prayer saying that he is surrendering his will to the will of the Father. He's showing us that we have a will. We have a desire, a desire to avoid pain, to avoid difficulty, to avoid rejection, to avoid the many ills in the natural that come when we say yes to the cross. And Jesus says to his own father, he says, not my will, yours be done. And we as Christians, and Paul is calling the Christians in Rome here, and the Spirit is calling us, not my will, not our will, but the Father's be done. Whatever is in store, let the will of the Father be done. My life is not my own. My passions are not my own. My finances are not my own. My family is not my own. My business is not my own. All things have been committed into the hands of the Father. It's part of the new covenant agreement that we don't often talk about in our discipleship courses. That to be a disciple of Jesus means that you've left everything and you've died and you now live a new life in Christ according to the will of the Father. This is our spiritual duty before God. Look what Paul says here, that it's our reasonable service before him. It's reasonable. That word reasonable means that in the eyes of God, this is the logical way that we are to live in light of the sacrifice of the cross. This is how we're to live. There's only one way to live, in light of the cross or as an enemy of the cross. There's only one way to live. He invites us into this way to live as though we are a sacrifice before him, fully surrendered. The scripture makes clear that we are priests before him. 
He called the nation of Israel to be priests in Exodus 19. In 1 Peter 2, he says that we are a kingdom of priests to our God, a holy nation. Jesus is the high priest. One of the functions of being a priest is that you make sacrifices. But we have to understand that Christ is the only one that made a sacrifice for the atonement of our sin. There's no amount of sacrifice that we can make in order to atone for our sins. There's no radical way. You, you can't give away enough money in order to atone for your sins. You can't say all the right things to atone for your sins. You can't serve the poor enough to atone for your sins. Only Christ, as the high priest, can atone for our sin, to wash us and make us clean. In Matthew 20, verse 28, it says that his priestly business was this, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus did as a priest, as a living sacrifice, and as a literal sacrifice on the cross. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Our priestly, our priestly business is different than Jesus's because our sacrifice in our life is not to atone for our sin, but as we present ourselves a living sacrifice before God, we are to bring the sacrifices of praise and thanks before the Lord. That's part of our role, to give glory that is due the name of God. To give him glory, to tell of his wondrous works, to tell of his greatness and his majesty and his power and his redeeming love. We bring the sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. In the temple worship, in the old covenant order of worship, there were sacrifices that atoned for sins, but they were also sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. One sacrifice belongs to Christ alone, the sacrifice of atonement. But the sacrifices that we bring before the Lord as a living sacrifice is to bring the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise before him. I was thinking about the nature of being a sacrifice before God and what it means. Um, a sacrifice must have a surrendered will. The type of living sacrifice that God is looking for in us, that is our reasonable service before God, verse one tells us, is that we have to have a surrendered will before God. We cannot resist his leadership. We cannot resist his commandments. We cannot resist his cleansing. We cannot resist his love or his grace or his mercy. It's not just his judgment or his power or his wrath that's a problem for humanity to receive. It's often his mercy and his forgiveness and his acceptance that's hard to receive. To be brought to the place of humility 
where we have to receive a free gift that is invaluable, the blood of Jesus, takes an incredible amount of humility. We have to swallow our pride. We have to say, there's no other way for it to happen unless you receive me. To receive a gift is often harder than giving a gift. There's some of you in this room today, you'd much rather give a gift than receive a gift. And people think you're generous, but you might have something else going on on the inside. But we'll talk about that another day. A sacrifice becomes a sacrifice when it gets on the altar and it's finally touched by the fire. Until then, it's just another animal. It's just another sheep. It's just another goat. It's just another bull. It's just another animal until it's actually on the altar and touched by the fire. That's when it becomes a sacrifice. Our lives become a sacrifice when we've been surrendered to God and the fire of his love and zeal and mercy begins to touch our lives. What happens to a sacrifice? When the sacrifice is on the altar, it starts to become like the fire that consumes it. As it's burnt up, it becomes like the fire. There's a spiritual exchange that was happening in the old covenant worship motif system where it was just a normal animal, but something spiritual would happen when it got onto the altar and the fire began to consume it. There was an exchange that was happening. There was something transpiring in the spirit that could not be witnessed with mere human eyes. And in the same way, there is something that transpires in the spirit when we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God and we begin to surrender to the power of his fire. We begin to surrender to his holiness. We begin to surrender to his nature. There are things in us that are not like him. There are things that are in disagreement with his holiness. The spirit searches us. He says, I want you to surrender yourself as a sacrifice before me so that as the fire of who I am touches you, it begins to transform you. It begins not to destroy you, but transform you which is exactly what he says in the next verse. In verse two, he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't live according to my name, but never allow the fire of who I am to touch you. Don't live at a distance. Don't be marked as a living sacrifice and kept in the stable. Allow your life to come upon the altar. Become the sacrifice. Become a living testimony. Become a living witness. Become transformed by the power and the fire of God. 
Let him search you. He says this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. What was happening to the living sacrifice or the, the sacrifice upon the altar was that it was being transformed. It was taking on a new nature. It was taking on the nature of the fire on which it lay. God wants us to be conformed to his ways, to his will, to his desire, to his commandments. He wants us to be conformed, to, to be changed into him. The prevailing culture insists that we find who we are, that we are to discover who we are and that our highest sense of joy and pleasure and satisfaction will be when we fully accept what that is. So we follow our passions, we follow our heart, we follow the desires, the dictates of our own life, we follow what the world says, we follow the culture, we march to the beat of the cultural drum, we talk like them, we sound like them, we receive them and hope that they receive us. And we're being conformed to the world. We try and do community like the world. We try and do music like the world. We try and do understanding like the world. We try and do all of the things like the world. And the Lord is calling us out of the world, just like the sacrificial animals were called out of the flocks and out of the folds to come and get on the altar to be transformed into something else. What does God want you to be transformed into? His son. He wants you to be transformed, conformed to the image of Christ, is what Paul tells us. The best version of you is not following the dictates, the compulsions, the temptations of your own soul and seeing where they'll take you and who it will introduce you to and what doors it will open for you. Your purpose is to follow the way of the suffering servant in light of the cross to live as a living sacrifice, be conformed to his death so that you can be conformed to his life. If we cling to his cross, we'll walk out of his empty tomb. If we die to ourselves and go into the grave, we will rise with him. We'll live forever. There's no other way. There's no other option. We're not provided multiple ways to eternal life. There's one way. His name is Jesus. He says, don't be conformed, but be transformed that you would prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. The people of God are to show forth what it means that God calls good and acceptable. The people of God are, but we have to be transformed because if we look like the world and speak like the world and 
do justice like the world and do power like the world and do money like the world and sexuality like the world, then we've not been transformed. We've merely been conformed. We're just a, an animal waiting to be sacrificed, but we haven't been sacrificed and we haven't let the fire transform us. So we look more like the animal than we do the fire. God has a vision for your life to transform you into the fire, to look like the fire, his fire, his person, his character, his nature. He says, this is what is good and acceptable in my sight. The sacrifice of the cross removes our guilt before the Father. And the sacrifice of our thanksgiving and praise before God doesn't remove our guilt. It doesn't make peace, but it proceeds from peace. We've received peace from God through the cross. And now we live a life from the place of victory and acceptance before heaven. We live a life from a place of peace and joy. We live a life from the assurance and hope of our salvation that no matter what transpires in this life, we'll be raised at the last day because of the work of the cross. And our confidence is in him. We put ourselves unreservedly at God's disposable, disposal excuse me, as living sacrifices before the Lord. What does it look like to be transformed and to become that holy sacrifice that he's talking about in verse 1 and 2? What does it look like to be transformed? It depends who you ask. Some people hope the transformation leads to the knowledge that God has. I want to be smarter. I want to be more brilliant. I want to know the minds and the thoughts of men. I want his power in that way. Others think that the transformation has to do with the power of God, where nothing evil would ever touch me. My armor is 100 feet thick, so... I won't be touched by negative circumstances. I won't be touched by damaged relationships. No one will have access to me because I can wield God's power to protect myself. Others think that it leads to prosperity and, and money and just the increase of wealth in the natural. But then Paul begins to talk about, again, in verse 9, what it means to be a living sacrifice before God. He says, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. That's the temptation that we find ourselves in with loving someone is that it's not actually true. It's saying one thing, but inside believing something very different. 
It's saying, I love you, I receive you, I bless you, but in your soul, you curse them and hate them and malign them. So to be a living sacrifice, we take that hypocrisy, we take that anger, we take that pain, that offense, and we put it on the altar as a living sacrifice so that our words and the posture of our hearts are in alignment and we're true. We have to be a people that are true. We have to be a people that are sincere before God. We can say lots of things, but we must act and speak in accordance with those things. Lest we be found insincere or filled with hypocrisy. So when I feel that hypocrisy rise up in my own soul, when I feel that offense, when I feel that rage, that bitterness, that anger, that wrath, I'm not left without power. I have a power called the cross. I bring that wickedness to the cross and I leave it there. Let it die there. Let my will, that's what I want to do, that's how I want to respond. I put it on the cross and I leave it there. Because it has to die. It has to be a sacrifice before God. I've gotta become like the fire on the altar and something has to be burned up. In the second part of verse nine, Paul says this. This is what it means to be conformed and, and transformed to the cross. He says, abhor what is evil. Hate evil things. Hate them. Be disgusted by them. Don't entertain them. Every time that your soul is compelled to enjoy something evil, Take it to the cross and say, no, I abhor this evil. Whatever sin it may be, whether it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, gossip, slander, backbiting, hypocrisy, whatever it may be, hate evil things. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. We hate what is evil. And this community is committed to hating evil and clinging to what is good. We cling to what is good and virtuous and true. We cling to pure love and devotion and mercy and God's justice and his ways. We cling to the sanctifying fires of God and having a clean soul before him and the fear of the Lord. We cling to what is good and we hate evil. When we see evil, we resist it. We speak out against it. We bring it to the cross. We bring it under the blood. We leave it on the altar of sacrifice so it can be burned up and we can be preserved. Love what is good. Verse 12, we remain steadfast in prayer. 
steadfast before him. We never leave the place of prayer. This is for every Christian. This isn't about IHOP. This is every believer. We remain steadfast in prayer because what happens when the world is trying to get you to bow the knee to its thinking and its ways, you abandon the place of prayer. Prayer is about absolute surrender. It's one of the most humble and humiliating things you can do is to pray. It is the sign of humility and weakness and dependence upon God because you're talking to a God that you cannot see with your eyes, nor can you hear with your ears, and you are in your most vulnerable state when you pray. And yet it is the place of the greatest power and authority released in the body of Christ. It's one of our greatest weapons. Praying the Bible is the greatest offensive weapon that has been committed to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to remain steadfast. Why, why does Paul say to remain steadfast? Because the temptation is to not be steadfast in prayer. It's to be a little bit here, a little bit there. My prayer life goes up when I'm in trouble, but it goes down when things are good. I talk to God on a need-to-speak basis. When my, when my car tire goes flat, I'm talking to God. When someone cuts me off, you know, I'm hoping God isn't listening. I'm, I'm on a need-to-know converse basis with God in my prayer life. Paul says, no, remain steadfast. It's your lifeline. It's, it's, the, it's the connection into intimacy with God and, and his heart. He says, remain steadfast in prayer because the temptation is not to. It's to flee from prayer. And to flee from prayer is to flee from God. And I'm not talking about the prayer room. I'm not talking about IHOP. I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about talking to your maker and your bridegroom God in secret, in your car, on your face, on your knees, with the word open, with worship music on. I'm talking about you speaking words to God. Stay steadfast there. Don't leave there. What does it mean to be transformed by that fire on the altar and be a living sacrifice? It means that we bless those that persecute and we bless and do not curse. The word of God is filled with the way in which we relate not just to enemies that are non-believers that hate the gospel and are persecuting the church in the way that we read about in Voice of the Martyrs, the stories that we hear from the underground church across the earth. What about adversarial relationships? What about the adversarial relationships in your own home under your own roof? Do you think a different Law or rule applies simply because they're a fellow believer. So if they're a fellow believer, we don't have to bless anymore. We get to say whatever we want about them. So you're telling me that, that God calls me to a higher standard in relating to the world rather than my own brother in Christ? No. 
No, the Lord says to bless every adversarial relationship. To not curse, to not speak, to not seek to undermine, to not twist, to not malign, to not add to what they said to make them seem more in a negative light. He says, be a living sacrifice. Bless them. Go out of your way to bless, to not curse. This is what Jesus did. This is how he lived towards his enemies, towards his adversarial relationships. This is how he spoke. This is our Lord of glory who's hanging between heaven and earth, suffering under the cross. And what is he saying? They're expecting him to curse them. Do you know why they were expecting Jesus to curse them? Because everyone being crucified was cursing the people that did it. I don't mean like some formal like witch curse. I mean cussing them out. That's what they were doing on the crosses in their suffering. Because of the anger and the rage and the pain and the humiliation, they were cursing them. And yet here is our Lord. Here is our crucified Messiah. Here is the tender, the weak one, the lamb, the living sacrifice. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgive them. Release them from all the guilt and the debt. Release them from this transgression. Don't hold it against them. Let their iniquities be blotted out. Let their sins be blotted out before you. Don't cast them off forever. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It wasn't just because of their ignorance that Christ was calling out for their forgiveness. He pleaded for mercy. Beloved, we need a people, be a people that plead for mercy. Mercy on all. Mercy on the right Mercy on the wrong. Mercy on the left, mercy on the right. Mercy on me, mercy on you. Mercy on guy down the road. Mercy on the enemies. Mercy on the persecutors of the gospel. Mercy on the wicked. Mercy on the Satanists. Mercy on the demonized. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Why? Because our God is a God who delights in mercy. He delights in it. He wants it. He's pursuing it. He's seeking for every way to give mercy. That's who he is. Your living sacrifice, you become like him. You become filled with mercy. You become compassionate. You become slow to anger. You become long-suffering. You relent from doing harm. That's what happens when you're a living sacrifice becoming like the fire that you lay upon. 
Let's invite the worship team to come out. We're gonna conclude there. You can go ahead and stand. Beloved, everyone is under pressure. Everyone feels like they're swimming against an uphill stream, a current that is pushing against them. Every believer on the earth, there's no believer on the earth that is just floating downstream and feeling like everything is just great. Everything is going well in my life. I've got no reason to pray. I've got no reason to cry out to God. Beloved, who we are is just a small part of the body of Christ in the earth. Everyone is swimming against the current. The current is increasing. It just is. The current of 2020 is not as strong as the current of today. The current of today will not be as strong as the current a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. Beloved, the pressure to be conformed to the world is getting stronger, not less. So there's a surrender that we're invited into. There's a conforming we're invited into. There's a transforming that we're invited into. Beloved, we are in the fight of our lives, our spirituality. There are things that hang in the balance. God is putting us through the refiner's fire. There is a testing that is upon us right now. There's a testing upon every believer right now in some way. I guarantee it. That's who he is. Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire. We all sang that. Your heart's one desires the refiner's fire? I'm not gonna sing these songs anymore. I mean, Bren, you can lead them, but I'm gonna think about what I'm singing from now on because I think God's listening and he's taking us up on things. Yeah, just nobody write a song about patience or... Take me through the fire. Take me through the flame. Take me through the testing. I'll do anything. He's seeing anything. He's seeing what we do when we go through fire and testing right now. Ooh, you, we will do anything. We're doing it. And not always well. <laughs> anyway. Let's just fix our eyes on Jesus right now. I apologize for being a little silly. Let's close our eyes. Let's fix our eyes on the cross. We love your cross, Jesus. We love your mercy. We love the blood that flowed down from Calvary and washed away our guilty stains. We think about the wounds in your head from that crown of thorns. Think about the wounds of your back. We think about your nail-pierced hands and your feet, your precious side, your face, your beard, 
your beard was plucked out, you were spit upon because of my transgressions, Lord. I want to live under the shadow of the cross. I want to be like a living sacrifice before you. I want to be pleasing to God. I don't want my way. My way has got me in a heap of trouble, Lord. Help me. Help me follow your way. This morning, Lord, we surrender to you in a fresh way. We, we surrender to your ways. We surrender to your leadership, your wisdom, Lord, heavenly wisdom, like General Fuller was talking about. We need heavenly wisdom, not earthly wisdom. We've led our lives. We've led things for so long. We've screwed it all up. Doing earthly wisdom, human wisdom. Lord, would you help us? Would you give us mercy? Would you give us what we don't deserve? Would you let the blood of Jesus wash your people and cleanse us from our guilty stains in a fresh way? We would be renewed in God and holy before you, pleasing in your sight, Lord, on the young and the old, on those that are in the last leg of their race, Lord, and those that are just beginning on the two-year-olds and the 80-year-olds, Lord, the sons, the daughters, the mothers, the fathers. Lord, would you pour out your spirit on us? Would you help us in this desperate hour? Would you help us, Lord? We ask for mercy. Thank you for tuning in to Sunday Sermon. For more information, service times, and free teaching resources, visit forerunnerchurch.com.